to Powell Presbyterian Church and just want to uh, remind those that are interested, our Monday morning Bible study uh, with Diane uh, will be meeting uh, on, at 10 o'clock uh, on Monday morning. A new study just got started and you can contact Diane if you have any uh, questions about that. Also, on Wednesday, uh, we'll have our prayer meeting and Bible study and that's done virtually. And uh, if you have any questions about that or have any prayer requests, please uh, contact me. You can uh, call or email the church and youth will be meeting on Wednesday evening as well. So those are some of the things that we have this week. And uh, if you will, open in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. We're finally up to the last chapter of Hebrews now. We've been working our way through it, and we've got a short passage, but I will warn you up front, it's, uh, it hits us pretty hard. And there's this thing, if you hang around uh, Christians or churches long enough, that you eventually hear the word orthodoxy. And what that means is right belief, believing the right things, and Many of the letters in the New Testament, they will have a lot of orthodoxy. Here's what you need to believe. Here's what you need to know about Christ. And then that gets followed by instruction. And the instruction can sometimes be a little difficult. We're getting into the uh, orthopraxy, if you will, or the instruction part of it here. And, uh, it, and he, as I mentioned, the author hits uh, where it hurts a little bit as we get into uh, some of uh, the instruction. Uh, as uh, we go into this, I want to just recall the very last verse of chapter 12, our God is a consuming fire, which was a great way to end his previous thought. He had talked about uh, Mount Zion and how the whole world, the, the Lord's going to come again and shake up the whole world, and the only thing that remains basically is Mount Zion, the heavenly Jerusalem, and those who have their faith in Christ, and, and our God is a consuming fire. It was a great way to end that thought, but it also works as a great transition into this uh, instruction that he gives us this morning. And so let me read from Hebrews chapter 13, uh, verses 1 through 6. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do again thank you for your word and for your instruction. And just how eternal your instruction is, what was written 2,000 years ago is still as relevant today as it was then and still hits us as hard today as it did then. 
And as we look at your word, we ask that you will speak it into our hearts, that you will add your blessing to the reading of it, that we may grow in you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm uh, one of those who likes history. I've mentioned that before, and, and uh, the history of the world, basically, and, and the history of Christianity. And there are a lot of neat books that have been written uh, lately. And it's interesting because some of these books that I've read are by non-Christians, actually, but they acknowledge what Christianity was or what Christianity is and how it has really affected the world. They don't really defend the faith. As I mentioned, some of these are non-Christians, but, but they will uh, talk about how Christianity has affected the world. <laughs> I'm just going to put a dramatic pause in there. Uh oh. Has the wireless been working here? Uh, that uh, I've mentioned before uh, how much I, I like history and, and these books that have been written and, and by non Christians, but acknowledging what Christianity has meant and means to the world and how it's really kind of changed the world. And Christians, just to give us kind of some uh, insight into uh, what our author is writing here as he writes these words in, in Hebrews 13, Christians were misfits, really, uh, in a couple of ways. Uh, first of all, uh, Jesus, this whole idea of, of Jesus was uh, weird to the world. Here's this guy that the, they had put to death, and then a lot of people saw him alive again, and, and they're worshiping Jesus as God, and, and that was kind of weird. And, and the ideas that Jesus had taught and, and that they were living uh, were very strange uh, for the times. Uh, also, just they didn't fit in. Uh, politically or, or in society, if you want to put it that way. They were just these oddball misfits, almost. And a great example of this is uh, Smyrna, the, the church in Smyrna. And I know uh, some have been going through Revelation, so I, I thought I would uh, just talk a little bit about the church in Smyrna. And, and there's a letter that gets sent to them uh, from Jesus to the, the church in Revelation chapter 2. And uh, what was happening to the church there is uh, the, the Roman Empire controlled everything, and they were compelled, everybody was compelled to, at some point, worship Caesar, among other gods. They was very paganistic, uh, but to worship Caesar. However, the Jewish people were exempted from this. Because of, of the history they had had, uh, the Jewish people could go to their synagogue and do their worship as they did it, and they did not have to worship Caesar at all. And what Rome thought was that Christianity was a sect of Judaism, if you will. Uh, it was a part of, of the Jewish faith, and so Christians initially were exempt from having to do all of this worship of Caesar and, and anything else as well, because they just kind of got lumped in with, uh, with the Jewish people. Well, what eventually happened in Smyrna and, and other places is the Jewish people got upset with the Christians, because, well, they weren't 
they, they had this Jesus, and, and the Jewish people weren't going to go with that, but also they were really angry because the Jewish people, uh, they rebelled against Rome at one point, and the Christians didn't join in. It wasn't their fight, they didn't, there was really no need for it, they thought, and, and that, so they, they just didn't join in the rebellion. Well, that really angered the Jewish people. And so in Smyrna, what the, the Jewish people did is they went to Rome and they said, here's the deal, Christians, they're not part of us. They're really not Jewish people at all. So they're not exempt from anything. So go ahead and throw them in jail if you want. Kill them if you want. In fact, uh, one of the famous uh, Jew or, uh, uh, Smyrna bishops was Polycarp, who was uh, big in the early church, and, and he was killed in the second century uh, because there were, the, the Jewish people said they're not part of us. They're their own thing, and so they're not, they don't have any exemption, so go ahead and do with them whatever you want. And in fact, in the letter, uh, what Jesus is telling uh, the Jewish people, or the, uh, the, the Christians in Smyrna, the church, is he's saying those people are calling themselves Jewish, but they're really not. They're not the true Jerusalem, uh, as Paul in, in Romans 9 and Galatians 3 would say, not all who are descended from Abraham are, are the true Jewish people. It's, it's the people of God and, and uh, the Gentiles engrafted in. And, and, uh, and, and that's just was kind of an illustration of, of what it was like to be a Christian back at these times. They didn't really have any allies. They were relatively small when you think of the great Roman Empire or, or even the, the nation of Israel. They were relatively small. No political power, no allies, really, and they had to take care of themselves. And so when our author writes here, let brotherly love continue, and, and then he'll talk about what that means for uh, the first three verses there. The, the positive is, is continue. So they are loving each other, but things are getting tight now, and there is a little persecution coming upon them. So he said, you got to keep this going. Let this brotherly love continue. And Jesus, uh, back in, in Hebrews chapter 2, the author had said, Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. And, and Jesus had mentioned this uh, himself in, in John uh, chapter 13 when he talks about the love uh, that our brother Jesus has for us. And, and Jesus said, love one another just as I have loved you. And you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. He was, he was pretty adamant about this too. Have this brotherly love among each other because there's nobody else that really has your back here. Uh, John writes in 1 John chapter 4, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Uh, I like uh, how one writer wrote it. I came across uh, this week. He writes this, a persistently unloving Christian does not exist. That does not mean we will always love well, but it does mean that we will always seek to grow in love for others. And our author is saying you've got to have this brotherly love among the Christians, among your brothers and sisters, because if you can't get it right here, You'll never get it right out there because it's a pretty unloving world out there. And so make sure you know how to love each other. And then he gives a few examples here, and this is not at all 
exhaustive, but a few examples of what that means. And it is important uh, to those people, especially at the time. Uh, he says, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, and that's in verse 2. And we remember, Christians were kind of on their own. And, and often on the move, sometimes involuntarily, we can read that in Acts, where there would be persecution, or they would run the Christians out of town, or, or whatever it was, and Christians would have to go. Sometimes it was voluntary. And we see that with people like Paul and, and Peter and Barnabas and Mark and, and all of those others that, that went out preaching the word and they would go out and, and many Christians did that in, in the early days. So sometimes it was forced, sometimes it was voluntary, but Christians, uh, it, they seem to have to go uh, at many times. But here's the deal, travel was very dangerous. If you remember uh, the parable of the Good Samaritan that Jesus told in Luke chapter 10, Luke starts the, the parable by saying this, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. And that wasn't even the scandalous part of the story. That's the part of the story everyone said, yeah, that's, that sounds about right. The, the scandal was that it was a Samaritan who ends up being kind of a good guy in this. But they're like, well, yeah, that's what happens to travelers. Robert comes, beats them up, takes everything they have, and leaves them for dead. That's just kind of how travel could be in those days. And, and the inns, you know, if you went to a new city, where are you going to stay? Because the, they didn't really have motels, but the, the inns that they did have, well, they were pretty dicey on the seedy side of town. You, you might not make it out alive. You might not make it out with everything you've got, for sure. That's, uh, that's pretty dicey there. So he says, show hospitality to these strangers, these brothers and sisters who are coming through. They don't have anyone else looking out for them. And then he adds, and, and some have even entertained angels, uh, unaware of what they were doing in verse 12. And and the original audience uh, reading this, they would have uh, had a couple of Im images in mind. Uh, Abraham and Sarah feeding the angels in Genesis 18. Lot bringing the angels in so they didn't have to sleep in the town square, bringing them in to his house in Genesis 19. Gideon in Judges 6, Manoah in Judges 13, and, and there's uh, other writings too of, of this kind of thing happening. And, and uh, he said, uh, you see what happens if you take in these strangers? He's not saying that you will entertain angels, but he is saying it could happen because you have no idea what God is doing when your brothers and sisters are, are in need and you help them out. You have no idea who you're helping and what God is doing through these, these people. So show this hospitality. Then he goes on in verse 3. Remember those who are in prison. Uh, back in Hebrews 10, he talked about prison. He, and he mentioned you had had compassion on those in prison. And, and Christians, the brothers and sisters, they were being thrown in prison. And I mentioned back in chapter 10, prison isn't quite what we think of it today. Back then, you were thrown in prison and maybe got a little food now and again. But that was pretty much it. Uh, food pretty much had to be brought by someone you knew or someone who had compassion on you at least. And if you were cold and needed clothes, well, that was probably going to have to come from somewhere else. In fact, Paul would uh, write to Timothy, bring a jacket, it's getting pretty cold here. 
uh, that's just what they needed. And so he's writing here, keep having that compassion. Remember those in prison as though in prison with them. And then he continues, and those who are mistreated in verse 3, since you also are in the body. And he comes back to that idea of the brotherly love, that you are spiritually related. And Jesus would say in our spiritual relation, our relation as brothers and sisters in Christ is even more so than our family, what we call our biological family relationships. Uh, Jesus said that a few times, one in Mark 3, when he was told your your mother and, and your brothers are here. And Jesus said, well, who are my mother and brothers? Then he says, whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. It's that spiritual uh, relationship that is stronger because of Christ than all of our other relationships. And when we look at this hospitality that he's uh, talking about here and these things, we can see that this goes beyond uh, just entertaining, if I can use that word. It's not just uh, invite some of your Christian friends over and have a meal, but there's nothing wrong with that, and that's a good thing to do, and we should have fellowship with each other. But we can see here where there's a need involved. We have brothers and sisters who are struggling And we might not have missionaries traveling through town and they can't find a place to live or anything to eat that we need to show hospitality for, but but there are many mission organizations, good ones out there, who are struggling, especially now, with things going on in the world. There are many Christians in jail. In fact, I, uh, I staggered through ordination with a prison chaplain, and he was saved in prison. And that, that's his, his ministry now. And, and he just talks about the great need uh, for mentors in prison and, and for resources. And it's, it's frustrating right now because he can't get into the prisons because of the pandemic. Uh, but they need our prayers. And he said, as soon as we open up, we, we, need, uh, we need things, we need people in prison. He said, because uh, he remembers when he got saved and he wanted to talk uh, about Jesus. And he said, the other inmates would rather punch me in the face than listen to me talk about Jesus anymore. He said, but I needed to talk to somebody. I needed something to read. They need our prayers. And we have uh, many areas in the world that they need help. Because Christians are still misfits, if you will, in many places. Like, like my friend who went through ordination with me said, nobody else wanted to hear about Jesus, but he, he needed to talk with somebody about Jesus. So these Christians, they, they, they were to do these things, and we are to do these things. And, and these ideas really in, in history... These ideas are pretty new at the time. These are ideas that we take for granted. Yeah, that we should care for the sick and and the needy. There is dignity in in all people. And sometimes uh, the world gets that wrong. But but this basic understanding of taking care of others that we've kind of just grown accustomed to was really outlandish uh, to a lot of these uh, people in the world, uh, in the ancient times. Uh, One of the books I'm reading right now 
it's, it's by a guy named Tom Holland. And he's a non-Christian, by the way, but the name of his book is Dominion, and the subtitle is How the Christian Revolution Remade the World. And remember, he's a non-Christian, so he's not defending the church. In fact, he's very quick to point out things the church has done wrong down through history, but he does have to acknowledge the fact that uh, these ideas, Christian values, caring for others, forgiving, things like that, they were laughed at by the Greeks and the Romans. Absolutely laughed at. That's ludicrous. You care for the weak? You forgive your enemies? In, in the shame and, and honor culture of old Europe, and, and it included a, a large uh, population, they thought that the Christian ethics were completely unworkable as a basis for society. That will never work. If you guys want to live life like that, it's never going to work. This is all about survival of the fittest. That was the dominating worldview at the time. And this idea that the Christians had of caring for others was completely outlandish and would never work. In fact, when there were uh, cities that would get taken by an illness, everyone would leave. The only ones that would stay behind would be the Christians, taking care of each other, and then eventually taking care of others that couldn't move out, and, and uh, they would become Christians. It was kind of this weird idea that these misfits had that we now take for granted almost as just our way of thinking. And not only was it this care for other people, and especially the brothers and sisters, but it was also their view of marriage. Well, this was crazy too. We see in verse 4, let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. And the Christian view of marriage didn't fit in with the world as well. Now, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7, uh, Paul is, is writing about a few things, and, and he writes this, he writes that husbands should have authority over the wife's body, and, and there's a, a context for that, and everybody in the world at the time would have said, yes, absolutely, you go, Paul. The husband should have authority over the wife and her body. But then Paul has the audacity to add, and the wives have authority over the husband's body. And everyone in the ancient world would have said, wait a second, Paul, you didn't say what I just thought I heard you say. There is no way that you said that. Is there, Paul, that the wife has authority over the husband's body. You mean that the husband can't run around and do whatever he wants? Everybody else thought that was okay. But these Christians were like, no. Both the husband and the wife are supposed to honor each other. In Ephesians 5, Paul would go to great lengths to talk about how the husband is supposed to love his wife as himself. Jesus gave us the definition of marriage in John, uh, or excuse me, in Matthew chapter 19. When he was asked about divorce, Jesus said this, Have you not read 
that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. One male, one female, and that's it. Those two become one. And the man can't just run around doing whatever he wants because he's honoring his wife as much as he's honoring himself. And I'm going to make everyone a little uncomfortable here, maybe a little irritated at me. And, and the point is not just to irritate people, but there's going to be a point at the end of this that, that I just want us to see. And I was reminded of this just in the past couple of weeks uh, as we go into an election season here in the United States. And uh, it's not in this state, but uh, one very close to us. Uh, a candidate uh, was a high-profile candidate. Uh, it was discovered he's having an adulterous affair. He's married, and the woman he's having an affair with is married as well. And there are some other things going on there. But you would think that people would hear that and that his polling numbers, that his support would go down a little bit. But just the opposite happened. His numbers went up. There were more people supporting him after the uh, knowledge of the affair came out than before. And in our two-party system that we have here in the United States, we have to look and both sides have been guilty of this where their person has been caught or it's discovered they're in an adulterous affair and it's as though people dig in and support them even more. Now, I, that's not a universal thing. I've talked with several individuals who have said, wait, I'm, I'm kind of upset about this and I don't know what to make of this. But society at large, it's as though they, they were willing to let this go. And I say this not to make everyone uncomfortable or angry, but just to show us how tenuous this idea of holding marriage in honor really is in this country. If this is going to get in the way of our politics, or if this is going to get in the way of our ideology or worldview, where we have these other things are important, but this, this honoring uh, marriage as Jesus defines it gets in the way, if it gets in the way of our friendships, of our entertainment, we're willing to put this under the bus and say, you know what, this other thing is more important. But this is important. There's a million things the author of Hebrews could have written about, and this is one of them he focuses on. And it comes out quite often in Scripture. And we can see just how universal it is, this tendency to move away from Jesus' definition of marriage. And then we get to a point where we wonder why God seems so distant after we have moved away uh, from what Jesus has said. And this is important, and I do want to read just a little bit uh, from Thessalonians. Paul's, Paul writes this in Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, starting at verse 3, he writes, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, 
not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you, for God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man, but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. See, this is important to God. He cares about our purity and our holiness. And also, uh, it's important because Paul points out in Ephesians 5, when he talks about this marriage and, and the Christian view of marriage, he says this mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. And that idea is brought up many times in Scripture, especially when you get toward the end of Revelation, the idea of Christ as the bridegroom coming for his pure bride. And the more we dishonor this most intimate of relationships, the one man and the one woman becoming one flesh, the more we dishonor that, the more we injure ourselves, our sanctification, and where we are with God, who all of a sudden seems so distant. Not only that, but the more we lose sight of this great love that Christ has for us, that he would honor us and die for us as a husband is supposed to be able to die for his wife, as Paul says. We lose sight of this great love that God has. Now, for the immoral and adulterous, and, and if you want to kind of split hairs there, the immoral, that's basically uh, what happens outside of marriage, if you will, uh, uh, what happened before you were married, mistakes you may have made along the way, or the adulterous, the, the unfaithful in marriage. We have to remember this. There is forgiveness. It's not as though you've made a mistake and oh, I guess now I'm done because here it says God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. We can't forget all the orthodoxy that we have before, how there's Mount Zion where the saints are made perfect by the blood of Christ. There is forgiveness for this, if we repent from it and go to Christ. And when I read that, that phrase, God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous, there's a couple of ways that can be emphasized. You can put the emphasis in a, in a couple different places there, and I, and I want to point this out. For those who do hold to Christ's definition of marriage and do hold to the scriptural teaching on, on what marriage should be and the marriage bed should be undefiled, the way we emphasize this is God will judge. I don't have to judge. God will judge. I can hold to God's truth in, in faith, and I can hold to it in love and even in boldness and in confidence, but I can't hold it judgmentally because God will judge. I will be a herald of what God is saying, but as lovingly as I possibly can and yet as truthfully as I possibly can. God will judge. But for the unrepentant, and I would be remiss and even unloving if I didn't point this out, for the unrepentant, the emphasis changes a little bit. God will judge. 
He really will judge this sexual immorality and impurity and adultery. Remember, our God is a consuming fire from the end of chapter 12. And he will judge. But remember, there's repentance in Christ. And when we look at society at large here, as we've uh, kind of hit the first couple of points here, and the third one will be a lot shorter, but we see, okay, we're, the first one, love. We're supposed to love each other. And we look at society at large and we say, okay, we didn't do so well there. Or at least we're not doing so well right there right now. All right, holding marriage in honor. All right, we're not doing a stellar job with that in society at large. Maybe the next one will be better. And then he turns to money. Are you serious? Stop punching us in the face like this. You know, he, he just keeps coming at us with these ideas that hurt. And you might be surprised how often sexual immorality and greed are tied together in Scripture. You can see it in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in, in chapter 6, in Ephesians 5, Colossians 3. That's a few of the places. Uh, a guy I was reading earlier this week, he even uh, noticed the Ten Commandments. Uh, commandment number uh, six about adultery and then commandment number seven about uh, don't steal and then the the covetousness comes later they all get it it's, gets tied together quite often and in a sensuous uh, society if you will uh, they do often go hand in hand but our writer continues then with verse five keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have for he has said i will never leave you nor forsake you so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear what can man do to me. And I like how a writer uh, wrote about this. And he's, I quote, he says, the author prohibits covetousness, not riches. One can be wealthy and not love money. One can be poor and love money above all else. And I think we've seen that in our lives and Scripture has some great examples of people who were very wealthy, but they were righteous. Uh, Abraham, is, is, he made it the Hall of Faith, the, the Hall of the Saints in chapter 11. And he had lots of wealth. Job is another guy. He had a whole bunch of things and he lost it all, but not because he was rich. There was nothing wrong with that. There were some other things going on. And that was the whole point, or, or one of the points of Job. But at the end, he had twice as much as what he started with. And that was good. And there are people we know who uh, do have great wealth, and they're very generous, and they don't even really care about money. They don't think about it. It's certainly not their God. And, and you look at them, and you praise God. I'm glad that guy's got a lot of money, because he's a good one to have money. We, we know those people. It's not... The wealth itself, but it's the covetousness. It's the, the wanting of money. Uh, Philip Hughes writes, the serenity of the true Christian knows that in having, Christ's, or in having Christ, he lacks nothing essential for well-being. And there are many passages that back that up. But we do, it is easy to have this affection for money. And part of it is is pride or, or ego. It's, it's almost having more of an affection for yourself than an affection for God. Let me read uh, Paul again as he writes to Timothy. And, and I just want to read this real quick. Uh, and this is very famous. A lot of you will know this. Paul writes, now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. 
For we brought nothing into the world, we cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing, with these things we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. See, again, it's God who's concerned about us. Doesn't care if we have a lot of money, but where's our heart? Sometimes we crave money because it's a, a source of security. If I have money, I can get through anything. But it's only Christ that is our true security. It is only Christ where we find what we really need. And, and that's what our author quotes as he quotes Joshua, actually, from Joshua chapter 1 and verse 5. I will never leave you or forsake you. And that was spoken to Joshua at a really important time of his life. He really needed to know God was going to be leading him. And then in verse 6, which comes from Psalm 118, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do for me? Jesus, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, he wrote, or he said this, do not lay up treasures for yourself on earth where moth and rust can destroy and, and thieves break in and steal, but, but treasure up the, the treasures in heaven where there is no moths or thieves and they're not going to break in and steal. And then he ends that little thought by saying, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And there's the godly concern for us again. He wants our hearts. He wants us to know that we're faithful to him. And the author here, in quoting Psalm 118, what can man do to me? Well, the answer to that is nothing outside of God's will because he said, I will never leave you or forsake you. There is our true security in Christ, and he will never leave us or forsake us. Man can do nothing to me. And then the question I would ask, well, what can money do for me? Well, it can buy me a few things, but it can't buy me true riches. Money will never get me a plot in the heavenly Jerusalem. Only my faith in Christ will take me there. And when we look at these three ideas that the author hits us with, this love, honoring marriage, and uh, keeping our life free from the love of money, we look at that and we say, boy, we've got our work cut out for us. We're still misfits in this world, aren't we? Because the world is going to go the other way and teach us other things on all of this. Now, the, one of the encouragements in this is it's been like this a long time, and God has always been with his people, guiding them in his truth. And we can also see the encouragement in how much God cares for us. That in this world, the reason he wants us to live this way is so that he knows where our hearts are, and more importantly, we know where our hearts are. Following God. Chasing His purity and His holiness and going to Him for, for
forgiveness when we fall short. He will never leave us or forsake us. Let's go to him now in prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you do never leave us. We thank you for the forgiveness of our sins because we have to confess there are times in our lives where we've fallen short and we have sinned. And so we thank you that there is Mount Zion we can run to, that Christ's love is poured out for us, forgiving us, and we ask that you will help us walk in this world according to your commands and that we can live righteously with true hearts dedicated to you and with our eyes focused on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.